Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty Band here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yet another crossover podcast with the Gamcast show. Wasn't going to do it for this one, but considering current events, the Mining Council uh, and the push towards, towards being more ESG friendly in the mining space, I thought this episode is very important to cross post considering the conversation which is laden with uh, ESG talk and the trade-offs that come with ESG or the hidden trade-offs that aren't discussed during the ESG and carbon credit accounting scam. People like Elon Musk are literally raping the world and they're trying to tell Bitcoin miners they need to do better. Listen in, freaks. Weird times. I don't want to have to go Slay Sailor, tell Elon Musk he's a hysterical hypocrite, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App, sell you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can buy whole sats right now. One cuck buck will get you about, let's see here, Clark's dashboard. 2,700 sats on the dot. One cuck buck, 2,700 sats. That's a steal. What else can you do on the Cash App? Cash App can be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and rounding numbers. You can get your paychecks direct deposited into the app so that you can DCA in the sats. That's another thing you do. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Set it and forget it. They have their boost program as well that allows you to save money with part at partner merchants when, when, per, when, uh, and shopping at partner merchants. And a bunch of other stuff too. And they're helping out our good friends at the Owls Lacrosse. If you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet and you do so, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you freaks uh, a lending platform. It's available to U.S. freaks as well. Lend at Hoddle Hoddle is a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users globally, anonymously, no KYC, AML, and on your own terms. How is it available to U.S. clients? Well, it's non-custodial. How is it non-custodial? Well, they leverage Bitcoin's native properties, particularly the multi-sig properties. When you put your funds in escrow in this multi-sig account, you hold a key. Your counterparty holds a key. Hoddle Hoddle holds a third key in that two or three signature. This is uh, beautiful in many regards, mostly because during the length of your loan, you can be sure that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. You can always have vision into the wallet that your funds are held in. You'll need to sell your Bitcoins, get some liquidity by borrowing, using your Bitcoin as collateral. Don't need to entrust anybody with your funds. Again, you hold a key. If there's some additional stable coins laying around in one of the wallets that you have and you want to get some yield on that, you can enter the other side of this marketplace, put them up to be lent out to other users looking to use Bitcoin as collateral for loans. Lend to Hoddle Hoddle offers one of the highest returns on the market for stable coins. So create your own offers and set your own terms on lend.hoddlehoddle.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L H-O-D-L dot com. Love the team over there. This trip was brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining as well. Compass Mining is here to simplify mining for the plebs, 
for the individuals. They want to make sure more individuals are mining and the way they do that is they have their site, you go to their site, they have miners that they've ordered on the back end, you pick your mining model, what you want to be hashing for you, and then you pick your hosting facility. Again, they've lined up hosting facilities with competitive power cost, competitive electricity rates, you buy your miner, you pick your hosting facility, Compass takes that miner, plugs it in that hosting facility, and it starts streaming sats to a wallet of your choice. It's a beautiful thing. Getting more individuals hashing. It's the the ethos and the drive and why Compass exists. He's got a big order for MicroBT, so they should have some what's miners coming in. Again, go to compassmining.io to check this out. Uh, and if you want, if you're interested in this, we have a special link in the show notes. If you use that link, it helps the show. Um, so think about doing that if you're interested. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is the team behind Slushpool. They offer the market Brains OS Plus firmware, which allows you to get more sats from your hash. But we're here to talk today about the fact that they have a new mining farm manager. I'm going blind on this one. I don't have the notes in front of me, so let me know how I do, Daniel. Edward, go eat an oyster. Anyway, the mining farm manager is available to anybody running farms that are running Brains OS Plus firmware. This enables uh, you to control your mining operation remotely from many devices. It's a beautiful thing. You can track everything. It also uses Stratum B2. So it sends messages to the pool, encrypted messages, to prevent man-in-the-middle attacks and eavesdropping attacks so people aren't hijacking your hash. Make sure that you're getting all the hash that you think you are. Some people can man-in-the-middle attack, steal hash, and mine on behalf of themselves using your hash. You don't want that. This encrypted data transfer via Stratum V2. Make sure that, that none of that eavesdropping or man-in-the-middle attacks are happening. It's free for all Brains OS Plus firmware runners. It will always be free for you guys. And beyond that, Slush Pool has an update coming too. Waiting on it. Go follow Slush underscore Pool to get this update. When it comes out, that's going to come with ultra-flexible payout parameters that you can set. It's going to come with dark theme, so it's easy on your eyes. It's going to come with a bunch of other stuff. Brains. If you want to check out the manager, go to brains.com slash blog. That's B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash blog. And check out their Brains OS Plus manager article. The launch article. Go to brains. B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Double I. Don't forget the double I. And check out everything they got going on. Their, their OS Plus soft, or excuse me, firmware. Uh, their their mining profitability tools, their content. Brains team's doing incredible things. Ellen Wald's doing incredible things. Very strong voice in the energy space, a critical thinker, and somebody who should be uh, on more podcasts, I believe, and just m- more well known generally. She's already pretty well known. She's a she's a head honcho in the energy space. Go pick up her book, Saudi Inc. Incredible book. Story behind Saudi Aramco. And the 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 inner politics behind the uh, the Saudi uh, government, very interesting insights. Enjoy, freaks. Take care.
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Welcome back to Gamcast. It's Marty Bent here, sitting down with Dr. Ellen Wald. So, talking about a lot of things. How are you doing, Ellen? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on. It's nice to know that you got a fellow uh, mainline individual uh, in, <laughs> focused on the energy industry and uh, and putting out some very uh, logical thoughts in an age where where logical consistency doesn't exist. Um, it's uh it's a crazy world we're living in now. It it is absolutely crazy. I think someone um someone commented. So I um I, I've been thinking a lot. I mean I, I spent a lot of time past couple years, maybe five year five or so years thinking about Saudi Arabia and energy. And so um now I've I've been thinking a lot about um you know that the narrative has kind of moved from the crazy oil industry to this kind of green, clean narrative and, and whatnot. And so I've been thinking a lot, a lot about that. And I've been looking into, um, I think I was actually looking at the IEA report that was just mm -hmm. issued this week about how if we want to have net zero by 2050, we basically have to upend everything in the modern Western lifestyle immediately. And you know, all sorts of things that I, I think are totally unrealistic. But one of the interesting things that they had, I think, 60 recommendations. One of those things happened to be about rare earths and, and minerals and that we don't have enough of these minerals and whatnot that we need to support the kind of massive switch to, say, to batteries and solar panels and wind turbines that we would need to kind of convert all of this to to clean energy so where where is there, there aren't enough minerals and one of their recommendations is that we should look for more minerals because we we currently don't have enough so we should look for more okay fine but you know i was thinking about what what this involves and and what these mines look like and what it means to mine for lithium for these cobalt, uh, for example, for all of these things. And it's a very dirty and distressing process that also often involves slave and child labor. Um, generally, I don't think we use slave labor to, you know, drill for oil these days. Um, and I was thinking about this and I was realizing that the more I learn about it, the more distressing it is. And, and it's like these people who are calling for I mean, I guess they call themselves environmentalists, but, but whatnot. And, and they, they're talking about raping our planet I mean, very literally, like that's what these minds do. Um, and, and it's like the idea of now of buying an EV is kind of repulsive to me in a sense that like of knowing what goes into those batteries and, and yeah, hydrocarbons are dirty too, but to say that these, electric vehicles and these solar panels are clean technology is not true, I think. And I think I'm perhaps getting a little bit more of, I think someone commented, I'm getting a bit more aggressive with my disgust. And, and 
I'd say that's that's a fair assessment. I'm, I'm starting to get more aggressive with it because somehow oil and natural gas are are reviled as these ugly, dirty things, and the, these batteries are clean. Yeah. Maybe it looks clean. You drive the car and you don't see any exhaust, but that doesn't mean it's actually clean. And uh, and yeah, so I'm I'm getting more aggressive with my disgust these days. I think well, that's thank, fair. Thank you, Ellen. I'm getting more aggressive with my disgust as well. Uh, I don't. It's again, uh, as I was discussing before we hit record, Bitcoin as an industry, particularly the Bitcoin mining industry, uh, gets picked on because uh, it, it is an energy intensive process to to mine Bitcoin, to produce the hashes that allow miners to add the blocks to the Bitcoin ledger. Um, but a lot of the the LARPing, I would say, coming from the people who, who don't want us to mine Bitcoin, uh, it comes from people pointing at, at, like, we need to be using green energy. Bitcoin's using stranded natural gas and coal in China. And they point to these green energy technologies, and like you mentioned, they only show the end product uh, that doesn't uh, have material exhaust or emissions that that you see as you're using uh, the, these technologies. However, they completely masquerade and uh, suppress the trade-offs and the, the process that comes uh, to make that end product possible. And it's just completely disingenuous conversation. Exactly. And some someone is going to see that somewhere they're going to feel that we in our you know homes with our electric cars and our whatever and our solar panels on our on our roofs may not see that, but somebody else is seeing it. And that to me is like the height of hubris. It's like, remember when it used to be about like save the children and save the people in Africa and help and save the rainforest. Well, now it's all about us. And we're, it's like, we want to sacrifice them and their environment so that we can feel better about ourselves because we're driving an electric car. Instead, you know, there's a lot that we can do and a lot of money we can spend to make the hydrocarbons that we have cleaner. We can have, you know, better mileage on our cars. We can have better, you know, exhaust systems. We can have lower emissions in our, you know, there, there are a lot of things that we can do that don't involve, um, you know, raping the earth or rare minerals and destroying other people's environments. Yeah, we could have Bitcoin miners show up and prevent fugitive methane emissions by consuming <laughs> energy on site. That's another option. Can we talk about what China just just came out with? I mean, that was that was huge. They're basically saying like, don't mine Bitcoin. Yeah, this is nothing new. They've, they've said this literally dozens of times throughout Bitcoin's existence. Um, it's uh, quote unquote China FUD is is nothing new. We'll see if the, this one uh. has some bite. Um, but yeah, it's like a catch twenty two. Like, all right, China, China mine bans Bitcoin mining. Those miners are just going to send their their operations outside of uh, China's borders, further distributing Bitcoin hash production and probably reducing risk for the network overall because a lot of the hash production isn't within the the borders of China and under control. Not under control, but uh, uh, so so. What do you think is worse for the environment? Is Bitcoin mined in China because they have coal plants? or aluminum produced in China because they use coal plants to fuel their aluminum smelters. I mean, is there, is there really a difference? No, I don't think so. Yeah. It's, 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 the environment. That's, that's the other thing. Like, so there's, there's so many logical inconsistencies with the quote unquote environmentalist line of thinking. Uh, let's go over some of them. One, one <laughs> I've been talking about a lot is like, all right, the shutdown of the Indian point, uh, nuclear facility in New York, like that's nuclear is pretty clean energy generation. Like these people, I, so I guess 
take a step back. Let me phrase what I think. I don't think these people care about the environment. I think they care about control over other individuals. I think they're communistic. I think they're socialistic. And I, I don't they point, point at Bitcoin and pick on Bitcoin for its energy consumption, not because they, they care about how much energy is being converted into electricity to mine Bitcoin, but they don't like the fact that Bitcoin is a free market, purely capitalistic driven monetary good that they cannot control. And they want to stop that uh, with any means possible. Oh, I would completely agree with that. In fact, I think that that Bitcoin is getting it's getting to the point now where governments are really looking at it and saying, how much of a threat is this to my sovereignty and my power? And you can see the ones that are viewing it as more of a threat and ones that are viewing it as more uh, as less of a threat. I mean, you, you can absolutely see this. I think that, that it's you can see with the way now that the 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 Treasury Secretary of the United States, Jenny Ellen, is, is speaking about this. It's like, it's like she'll say one thing. She said, I think she said that um, she hinted at it during her her confirmation address that they want to address Bitcoin. And um, you know, then then they came out and they said, well, it's often used for terrorism. And that was like a clue that you know more was coming and, and now they're saying if you use it for buying something i think over over ten thousand dollars you have to file paperwork with the irs so yeah it's it's definitely i think that people are, are definitely coming to view it as a threat to power and control and and just like i think yeah just like these these so-called environmental regulations it's like this idea of greenhouse gases being the most important environmentalist cause beyond all other things has has made it so that you can kind of claim this and use it as a way to either get money for your business or control people's lives and it's 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 become this like it's it's ever present it's like in everything you can you can make a claim that it's in anything and use it as an excuse for control um, I mean, remember right when the lockdown started and they were like, the lockdowns are great for the environment. You can see, you know, the mountains from Delhi and, you, you know, they're, they're so great for the environment. And then it was like, well, were they really all that great? Did they, did they actually do anything to help the overall problem of greenhouse gas emissions? And they're like, no, we need more lockdowns. I was like, really? Well, now you're showing us your, your real, what, what you tell us what you really think. Yeah, and all the mass that have just been discarded and, and polluted into the oceans and, and the, the forests of the world. It's all, um, again, these people don't care about the environment or actually being logically consistent. They want to control others. And yeah, and I mean, in, in terms of Bitcoin, <laughs> Treasury Shek- Secretary Yellen, uh, I think she has a personal vendetta because she got a, a thing. Uh, she got like she was the subject of guerrilla Bitcoin marketing campaign when she was Fed chairman. So ah, well, that explains her her personal. Yeah, somebody had a buy Bitcoin sign as she was explaining why the Fed cannot be audited and the juxtaposition of somebody <laughs> recommending that you, that you opt into a pure open source system that you can audit at any time uh, next to her saying, no, you you need to trust us central banks, but you can't audit us. It's it's like a poetic thing. And she has a vendetta, but she's going to lose. They're all going to lose at the end of the day because hopefully we're getting back to uh, a, a society that... Uh, respects and looks for objective truth and bitcoin the ledger brings objective to, truth to to the world in one way um and and, that, and once you get dragged into that rabbit hole you seek objective truth everywhere else i'm not trying well, to spit oh, I was gonna say, and at you but one of the interesting though one of the interesting things recently was this this ransomware attack and how um 
So they demanded to be paid in like untraceable cryptocurrency. And then of course, in like irony of all ironies, after they get paid, it drops. Yeah. I mean, some people say that was not an irony that, that, you know, someone was out there engineering that, but, um, you know, that's, that's a risk. Hey, you, you get, you know, $4 million or four and a half million dollars in, in ransom. And then the well worth of that drops. Yeah, like 20% <laughs> so. in the course of a few days, 25%. Yeah. Let's jump into the colonial pipeline. What, what, uh, we were emailing last week and you're in the midst of oh. diving into the details of that. What, what happened from your perspective? So it's so one of the interesting things is that that I learned about this and not being a cybersecurity you know expert or anything, but is that apparently a lots of companies have um, insurance policies for these kinds of cybersecurity attacks, and apparently hackers go around and they find out what these cybersecurity policies are, and so they know how much people are covered for, and they tend to attack and ask for like around that amount because it makes it much more likely to pay. If you're asked for like $10 million, no, absolutely not. But like four and a half million dollars? Not so much, it's covered by our insurance policy. And if you read, there was an actually an interview with the CEO of Colonial Pipeline afterwards and he's like, yeah, I paid it. I thought I was doing the right thing for my country, basically. <laughs> now, of course, paid it, okay. And they ended up getting some sort of decryptor tool that like didn't really work and wasn't good enough anyway. So they paid the ransom and they didn't even get like what they needed. So it's, but it's kind of interesting that he still thinks this. And one of the things that no one has answered yet is whether they were advised to do that by the Biden administration. When President Biden was asked about it, he said, no comment. He didn't say no. He just said like, I have no comment. Probably didn't. Was, know, people were talking about it. He was like, I have no idea. Yeah. Which, you know, like could have meant like he has no clue what's going on or it could have meant like he can't say yes, yeah. but he can't, it doesn't want to lie because they could prove him wrong. So he just said no comment, which means did the administration um, advise them to pay it? That would be an interesting policy considering that like the longstanding policy has always been, you know, like don't negotiate with terrorists, don't give in to, don't, don't pay ransoms. I mean, you know, you do it with Iran, they just kidnap more people and hold them for ransom. So it, it, it just encourages it. Um, but then when they, the national security advisor in, in cyber security was asked about it, she basically said like, no, we have no, you know, that that's up to the pipeline. If they want, that's up to the private company if they want to pay it. But apparently the ransom had already been paid by that point when she said that. So it seems to me like there's a lot of confusion out there that the government doesn't really have a policy. What is this saying to companies all over the United States, some of which are critical to U.S. infrastructure. I mean, this is like a big deal and not like a big deal. It is a big deal. And it would seem like the time to develop some sort of clear strategy and protocols for dealing with this was, you know, like a year ago if, or five years ago, not tomorrow. Yeah. So uh, that, that's a bit disturbing that we don't have this. This was something that I would have expected 
is already in place. Yeah, you need a, a national mandate, get all your critical infrastructure off of Microsoft and on the wall and, um, and make sure you're, you're secure. So what actually happened with what got attacked, the accounting system, correct? Like nothing happened to the actual pipelines. Yeah, it, it's not exactly clear, but it's some sort of like their customers, like it had to do with their customers. Uh, and so they took the pipeline offline when the hack happened, I think in order to both prevent other parts from being infected. Mm -hmm. um, but also, and, and, you know, I think that it was probably a good move because, <clears throat> excuse me, while pipelines are hands down the absolute safest way to um, transport petroleum, transport hydrocarbons, transport well, you wouldn't transport coal in a pipeline that, that would work, but but any, you know, natural gas, petroleum, gasoline, jet fuel, all these things, it's the absolute safest way to transport them is in a pipeline. It is not safe to put them in trucks, to put them in rail cars, uh, not, not that, I mean, ships are pretty safe, but pipelines are really very, very safe. However, they're very, very safe because there are a lot of safety measures. And so if they at any time felt like any of their safety measures or their um, surveillance over the pipeline could be at risk, then I think that definitely warranted shutting it down because the absolute worst thing would be for something to go wrong, for them to miss some sort of safety issue. I mean, you can have explosion, you know, you can have these things, even just a leak um, that, you know, could have caused environmental damage, I think is, is not something that we are prepared to accept as a country. Like this is not the Soviet Union where, you know, you can like let a nuclear power plant melt down and kill a bunch of people just to avoid embarrassment. <laughs> like we Americans ex have different expectations for safety. And so the fact that they did shut it down and we did experience a disruption in normal life, I think is, is that's an acceptable trade-off to make sure that, that, safety precautions were maintained. And I do wish that when this had happened, they had talked a little bit more about how this was very, this is important for, for safety because it is a big pipeline and there are a lot of offshoots and they need to make sure that it's running safely. Um, the problem was when they did it, like they didn't, there was the, the, the outcome, the, the, the after effects were very poorly managed. So, People, first it shut down over the weekend and kind of nobody really knew about it because there weren't, we weren't feeling any effects of it yet. But as soon as kind of word started to get out, then panic buying started. And it's, it's understandable. Like I get it. I live in Florida. When a hurricane comes, you just want to make sure that like you're prepared, that you have your water, that you have your, you know, stuff, that your car is full of gasoline in case you need to get in the car and leave. But there's no hurricane coming. Like people didn't really need, it wasn't like they needed to get in their car and drive like 50 miles. So the, I think that they could have done a better job alleviating the panic buying. Um, and also there should have been plans in place to deal with, with how to deal with a pipeline offline. So it should have been like protocols, like, okay, the pipeline's offline. Here's what we do. Step one, step two, step three. We've got to get, you know, trucks going to these places. Here are the places that need it most, you know, as opposed to kind of just like waiting around to see. And so I feel like that's where they really dropped the ball. Yeah. And it's being used as, I don't want to say an attack vector, but an opportunity for the government, the federal government to come and be like, we need to nationalize pipeline infrastructure. <sighs> the oil and gas industry cannot be trusted. It's a... Uh... 
Uh, they had nationalized pipeline. There would be no pipelines. Like, right. I mean, it, as it is, it's so hard to get these things approved. It's so hard to build them. Like, we but we really need it. Like, you know, it's it's not a joke, and people don't understand that it really is the safest, best way. I mean, look at remember in in Canada they were using rail cars to transport oil, and there were terrible crashes and fires where people were killed. Is that how, because it's the stuff is going to be transported? It needs to be used. We need to. People think like, oh, turn off the pipeline, and everyone will go out and buy an EV and happily use it. First of all, that's not going to happen. Second of all, if everybody went out and bought an EV and plugged it into the grid, we would collapse our entire power system. But forget it; it would be done. So uh, you can't you can't move ahead of the, the customers. You just have to understand that like this is our infrastructure. This is what we're working with. There are ways to make it better. There are ways to like for all of our infrastructure issues and for all of our, our, you know, dirty whatevers. The fact is that it's a global climate. And every time China brings another coal power plant online, like it literally doesn't matter for every, every person in the United States drove an EV. Like it wouldn't matter because China keeps building coal power plants. And, building coal power plants to build green technology (laughs) and non-green technology and everything else in the world there in China because they have coal and it's cheaper for them to use their coal than it is to import natural gas to burn, which not only coal, but they have slave labor too. Don't forget the slave. They can leverage that well. Um, So like it's within a nonsensical world. We're sending all these jobs over to China or like shutting down uh, very, beneficial uh energy generation fa- like power facilities here in the u.s saying we need to transition to green and we're sending <laughs> jobs over to china where they're using coal to build this green technology and then we're buying it back for it's like some fucked up form of mercantilism that makes no sense oh oh completely and then i was actually i was um listening to a panel several months ago um and um there was this guy on the panel who owns like a solar uh, rooftop solar um, company. They do rooftop solar installation in actually in Pennsylvania. It was it had to do with like energy in Pennsylvania. And he's like, look, the Chinese solar panels are still cheaper, even with tariffs. And, you know, I offer to people, do they want the American made ones or do they want these Chinese ones? And he says, almost everyone picks the Chinese ones simply because they're cheaper even when they're offered an alternative, which means that clearly either we need that, that like if we don't want to buy these things and if we don't want people to, to buy them, then like we need to put better financial incentives because the moral incentives, you know, when Bush comes to show people are more concerned about the extra dollar than they are about the fact that they were made using enslaved Muslims in China. So, uh, it, clearly we just need a better financial, like put more tariffs or make it illegal to sell things that are made using slave labor or prosecute people who, I, I mean, there are a whole lot of things that we could do if we really don't want people using these things. But I think clearly they don't care about the morality of it. No, people people care about the morality of their tweets more than the actual uh, impact of, of the things that they use every day. Ah, uh, I'm getting frustrated. Is, is net zero carbon even possible? Is it advantageous? 
I personally don't think it is. I, I think that the idea of net zero is just is that they use this as a way to basically say it's okay to buy offsets, which means that if you're John Kerry and you fly around the country and your the world in your private jet, as long as you bought lots of offsets, well, you know who's getting those offsets? Like Tesla. It's not like you're actually going out there and like planting a bunch of trees. Uh, so uh, it's it's all about the offsets. It's all about the money. It's not, you know, and the money going to certain companies. It's not about actually reducing it. Plus, like John Kerry's jet really doesn't matter. Like I said, when China's building more and more coal plants. Yeah, what are they, they plugged in like 280 last year, literally yeah. one and a half a day. Or, something. or not one and a half a day, one and a half a day. Yeah. Like, it's, and like, does it is there even a climate emergency like these people have been screaming for decades that well they think that every they think that all weather is part of the climate emergency like if there's a wildfire in california it's a climate emergency a wildfire in california is an emergency it's just a different kind of emergency than a climate emergency and we also know how to prevent massive wildfires from starting by doing better, like for better fire mitigation, and I mean, and we do that in Florida. Actually, there are controlled burns in Florida all the time. Yeah, I mean, we saw How this Australia last year or two years ago. Whenever they had their crazy wildfires, people were like, "Global warming, global warming." The farmers are coming out. They're like, "No, the government told us we couldn't do controlled burns like ten years ago, and the the product of not being able to control burn for a decade is these wildfires." Yeah, and and people are like, "Oh, well." the hurricanes are worse. So are the hurricanes really worse? So not historically necessarily, but also, okay, they do more damage. Yeah, they do more damage because we are growing economically and people build a lot of really expensive houses right in the path of hurricanes. So obviously they're gonna do more damage. It's not because the hurricanes are necessarily worse. It's just because we put more society and more wealth directly in their path. And, and we've known this. I mean, I, I studied that in college. <laughs> like, I mean, that was many years ago. So, you know, it's not like we didn't know this, but the, this, the data, or it's not even a data, it's like a statistic. It's just manipulated to show what they want it to show because there's a lot of money and a lot of power invested in these, these things. So, you know, it, it's always... And, and you know, and I live in a state that has a lot of hurricanes and they're constantly, every time there's a hurricane, they're like, climate change, climate change. It's not everything is climate change. I mean, some things are climate change. Now, we also know that the climate changes naturally, not necessarily from man-made things. Um, but I do think that, there, that it's been very interesting that they're switching the terminology from like climate crisis to climate emergency. And I think that that is a very specific thing that's being done because they realized that after this like pandemic thing, you can declare a health emergency and so many people will just get in line and follow the rules and do what you want. And the incredible consolidation of power because of the use of the word emergency. And so now you see people transferring that over to climate and using it to talk about climate emergency. And so the I think it, it is very, the language that we use and are using to describe this is actually very important because it, it kind of gives us a sense of, you can say like where, where things are going or where the, the people who are kind of holding the strings want things to go. 
about control. They want to control you. They don't care about the environment. And so that's like one of the most disheartening things is seeing people in the oil and gas industry fall prey to this ESG narrative and cater to it and work within the false framing that's been put forth oh. owning the framing themselves. So much. They're like the biggest, like, they're like, oh, the, the, the Exxon is in favor of a carbon tax, you know? And they're like, well, look at this like so-called conservative proposal for a carbon tax. Okay. Here's what it does. Of course they're, they're in favor of it because they're big business. They get to be in control. They get a lot. Basically they were this, this plan that these oil companies signed on to basically was like do a carbon tax. And then the EPA will roll back a lot of the um, you know, restrictions on you. So of course they're going to sign up for it because like if they, they get that in exchange, plus this carbon tax plan, basically it's a carbon dividend. And in the plan, they say that, you know, they basically like the government will give money to people like a family of four will get X amount of money every year from this carbon dividend. And they actually say in there that the dividend is really crucial to the plan, because once you put in a benefit like that, it's really, really hard to get rid of it. So once people start getting their checks, you can't take it away. And, and that was basically like their nefarious thing. And they said it outright, like that's how they control you by giving money, by giving you money. So it's like, and, and, and you know, you say like, oh, well, the oil companies want this and they sign on to it. Yeah, because there are benefits that they get from it. It doesn't mean that they believe it but they see a benefit in participating in this kind of framework and this kind of discussion because there are benefits to it, especially if you're a big business, because you have the resources to deal with these things that little companies don't. And so the more you can get these regulations in place, the more that keeps out your competition. Bunch of weak men and women driving us down. Or you could say they're a very smart bunch of people who are trying to make the most money for themselves and their shareholders. Oh, weak. It's nefarious, but. Yeah, weak men of character <laughs> can be very smart. Um, but it's, I mean, it is literally dangerous. Though. Again, going back to Indian Point, you're going to shut that down. Let's talk about New York State. New York State banned drilling in the Marcellus for it, within their borders. They shut down this Indian Point power plant that was nuclear. And to replace that energy generation, they're building... <laughs> natural gas power plants that are going to import Great. natural gas from out of state. So yeah. I'm sure Pennsylvania is very happy. We are. To, you know, supply them with their natural gas needs. Yeah. It's like, when, like, do you have faith we can, like, or any hope that we can get like the conversation into a more logical framing and just be realistic about all this stuff? Like, what do you think needs to happen to push back against this insanity? I think people have to realize that their lifestyle is actually like that. What these 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 policies that people are that that are being advocated are actually they're advocating for a rolling back of people's lifestyles once they realize that they're not going to be able to turn on the lights whenever they want. They're not going to be able to get in a car and go somewhere, you know, because they need to go to the store to get a a jug of milk, or they're not going to be able to go because their electricity use will be restricted. Because if you're going to get rid of the easiest, cheapest, best sources of, of power generation, and you're going to replace them with expensive intermittent ones, then that means that your lifestyle, like unless you're filthy, filthy rich, and you're willing to pay extra to have uninterrupted electricity, you're probably not going to have electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, like, 
very, very seriously. I think that that's what's needed for people to be like, whoa, hold on. What exactly are we supporting here? Because they think and they've been told that we can do this without any change to our lifestyle. And people are basing that off of technologies that we don't have and that we're not even particularly close to getting. And I don't want to say like, yeah, there could be some great discovery. I, I believe in the ingenuity of the human race and that we will discover and invent new things, but that's not a guarantee that it's going to happen in the next five years. It might not happen for 50 years, but, and people, but I, so I think when, when it comes to really affect people and they understand that they are not going to be able to live the kind of lifestyles to which they're accustomed, that that's when the pushback might happen. But it's sad to think that we have to actually get to that point. Well, we have to we have to fight the narrative. On like, I think we have to get on the narrative battlefield and just be like, all right, this, these policies literally hurt poor people. Like, they, you're you're virtue signaling like you want to save the downtrodden and in third world countries, this is going to make them worse off. Uh, oh yeah, you're and hunting, it's they're hiding the trade off. It's completely disingenuous. They're they're liars, without a doubt. And it's but I don't think that they will understand until it affects them personally when when the utility company says we're shutting off your air conditioning your, your electricity between you know this time and this time and they're like what you mean it's going to be 90 degrees and my air conditioner is not going to i can't be you know that's when people are going to push back and there are some people who probably i think there are some people who who understand or who who are all for that, who think that our society is decadent, that we shouldn't live this way. I, those people are very, very few. Yeah. I mean, but, but we've seen examples. We had rolling blackouts and brownouts in California in years past. You had Austin earlier this year. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in New York City with the, the decommissioning of this nuclear power plant. Like, Oh, yeah. And, and that's really sad because I think that if we had a much bigger push towards nuclear... Right. Then, um, then we actually could maybe meet some of these goals, uh, you know. But the thing is, it does take a lot of time and money to build nuclear power plants, and we need more of them. And we're not building more of that. Like, like if if we want to have more nuclear power plants up and running in twenty thirty, we need to be breaking ground on them like now. Or we need to really advance the technology that, that I think is, is actually really promising of small modular reactors, which are smaller, which can be used to say power like an industrial um, park. Okay. And are at the end are, you know, don't take as long to build and, you know, really could be a viable option instead of building a massive nuclear power plant to have more like localized power generation. And I wish that we could talk about that more instead of just talking about solar, wind, and batteries, because that technology just isn't, it's not going to provide us with the kind of power that we need. So unless we decide that we don't want electricity, we don't want to be able to get in a car and drive somewhere on demand, you know, maybe, maybe people can only get like one car ride a week, you know? Are we willing to have that as part of our lifestyle? I don't think so. No, no. And it doesn't like, and again, you know, like wind and solar, they focus on like low cost, low cost, low cost. It's like, I don't care about the low cost. Number one, the LCOE metric that they point at, like is really disingenuous. And then mm. 
<laughs> number two, it's not about the cost. It's about like the, the reliability and actually being able to provide the populace with electricity. Um, like the LCOE stat that they've been throwing out, like it's now cheaper than that gas. It's like, well, the, the capacity of that is, is like something like 40% where that gas is closer to 90. Yeah, I, it's like every time I see that, I just like ignore because it it's like I know they're manipulating something to get that statistic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I came in hot. Is it, we've been under attack. Elon's been attacking us. Bitcoiners, the, 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 the like, the hysterical environmentalists have been attacking us nonstop and starting to leak into the mainstream. People are like, oh, should we be like using another cryptocurrency? Is there a green coin? Uh, oh, there's because it's, it's all about the narrative. It doesn't actually matter whether it is green or clean. Oh, it's all about just constructing the narrative, right? Yeah, Ethereum, that's how they launched. They launched because they're going to transition the proof of stake, which is a different consensus mechanism that isn't as energy intensive and they're going to give you a world computer and, and jerk you off and it's going to be a great, great uh, future. Um, How about like people on exercise bikes? We could do that as well. You know, because then yeah. it's also good for your health. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. see? Can't do that. You got to lock them down, um, freak them out and make sure they're not going to get... Uh, and then stick them on the bike. <laughs> but it's... Uh, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Um... So I mean, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm not a Bitcoin, like, I don't, I don't own any Bitcoin. I don't trade Bitcoin. Um, I think it's actually more like a commodity than a currency. Well, so, so let's get into this. So you wrote Saudi Inc., a book about Saudi Aramco, um, yeah. sort of the geopolitics exist in the international oil market. And it's uh, at Transversal Consulting, you, you consult on energy markets and geopolitics, right? And how energy affects geopolitics. And I think... Uh, I've had this discussion on this podcast with Anash Al-Haji, particularly how Bitcoin plays into the international oil trade, where we have the petrodollar now, where many countries, they want to buy oil, they have to convert their native currency into dollars and then purchase it that yeah. um, uh, and settle it that way. Where Bitcoin as a global, basically a global currency that can be used by anybody and accessed by anybody, uh, can provide a, a mechanism to settle these commodity trades, these energy trades yeah. in the international market much more efficiently and much more fairly where you, where you, you cut out the, the bartering uh, of currencies and the FX markets to, to get your, your oil. Yeah. Well, so I think, so there's, there's a lot to, to unpack there. Um, you know, I, I, Venezuela actually tried to develop its own, uh, cryptocurrency called the, the Petro. Yeah, but anything Venezuela does has to be taken on a grain of salt. I mean, I, I think it's it's really interesting. And I actually wrote, this was back in 2018. And I think Bitcoin had like fallen like 40%. And um, and I was, I was thinking, I was like, wow, this is kind of mimicking the experience of commodities more than like a currency. And, um, you know, it's, 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 I felt like, uh, I don't know, I kind of, I actually wrote a piece where I argued, I was like, well, here are the ways it's like a currency and here are the ways that it's like a commodity. And um, it seems almost like it's intended to be the antidote of modern currencies. It's like, like cryptocurrencies are designed to avoid this central control and, um, well, much like commodities are controlled by their owners and rarely by a central government authority. So like 
like the Saudi kings don't control so much. Like, like I, I don't know. I thought it was, I, I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I kind of see cryptocurrencies as like between a currency and a commodity. It's kind of like they're, they're in some ways they act, they're like commodities and in some ways they're like, they're like currencies. Um, so I, I find it very interesting. Um, like you can't wear Bitcoin as jewelry. You can't power your car with it. You can't eat it. So maybe it is a bit more like a commodity. Like oil isn't worth anything until you do something with like you, like, like if, so, if you're trading oil and you mess up and somehow you end up having to like take delivery of like barrels of crude oil. And, and this actually happened. There's a really interesting article that was written by a woman who now works in, in Hong Kong for, she's for Bloomberg, but she wrote about, I think it was called, that time I tried to buy a barrel of oil. <laughs> and like, it's a problem sometimes with commodities traders, they mess up and they end up like having to actually like take delivery of like pork rinds right. and, but oil. Okay. So, but what do you do if you show up with barrel of oil at your door? Like you can't do it. You can't even put it in your car because it has to be refined first. So, so in a sense, like, like, like it's out there, it's stuff, you can make money off of it, but then you have to transfer it to something like, I mean, and now more people are accepting Bitcoin as in exchange for goods though, which I think is interesting. You're going to tell me that you actually can wear Bitcoin, are you? Well, this is this is Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I can hand this to you. You have Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I, okay. You could, but I'm not like like gold. Okay, no, it's a currency. You can like make it into an equity. Well, so that gold is a good example. Gold is a commodity. It doubles as a currency, right? And so that's all. Yeah. A lot of people point to to Bitcoin's volatility, and they're like, "Oh, it can't be a viable currency. The, the exchange rate, purchasing uh, power." Okay, but currencies, it used to be, like, there were times in, in like, a, the currency of a struggling nation might, like, lose 40% a month. So that's not, that's not a, that, that's just, that's not a abnormal thing. No, but uh, I also think it's a product of Bitcoin's, basically, like, where it is, like, in its life cycle. Like, it's so early. We literally have an alien technology and monetary good for the digital age that, humanity is, is trying to price in real time and so like in the, in the early stages of bitcoin's life i believe it's something that will last for centuries um where we're, we're as a society as a human race attempting to accurately price this this new monetary good and just the nature of that and the uh, relative uh the relative market cap Bitcoin has, the small market cap it has compared to its competitors uh, makes it uh, very volatile. It's, it's easy to um, move the price with uh, smaller amounts of trading than you would in typical currency markets. However, over time, as more people adopt it, as more people accept it as a currency, um, that should that volatility should trend downwards. And actually, over Bitcoin's life, it has trended down giving a pitch here now yeah no i think it's 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 super interesting to watch you know but like i don't trade oil either and i watch oil so well that's where i don't have any like skin in the game yeah well that's so that's like another reason this podcast is this like i mentioned it'll be interesting to see if bitcoin the settlement layer um uh, the the p2p network acts as a, a way to settle um the purchase of oil and gas on the international markets, but also uh, how it integrates into oil and gas operations. So the company I work for, Great American Mining, this podcast is we go um, to 
upstream of, of natural gas power grids and we go through the natural gas supply chain, we find where gas is being either wasted or underpriced and we say, hey, let's mine Bitcoin with this and it's being flared. Um, hey, better than flaring it, right? Yeah, I mean, think about that. It's, uh, this is, Alan, these are the small steps we can make to become a more environmental, uh, environmentally uh, conscious society, a society set on conservationism. We're just setting that gas on yeah. fire. Just hey. <laughs> Bitcoin is conservationism. It is. Oh, it really is. There you go. There, there's your, there's your narrative. Well, I've been running with this all week. I, I may, I'm yeah. testing a few narratives right now. Where okay. Bitcoin is a boon to conversa- conservationism, uh, and uh, ESG movement is pro-slavery. Um, so ESG, ESG is pro-slavery. Um, yeah, that I I remember when I was looking into started looking into this ESG stuff. First of all, someone like hit me with the term, and I was like, "What? I've never heard of this." No one. Last twelve months, it's like a buzzword in, in yeah. finance. And um, and then I was like, "Wait, okay." So I was looking at these things. I was like, "So this company can qualify as ESG because it makes batteries, which could be made with like child slave labor in you know Africa." it gets an ESG rating because of the E, but not because of the S like, come on, you know, you're just like, ignore the S in favor of the E. And someone was at someone on Facebook was like, wanted to know about like ethical investing. And I remember writing to her and I was like, I was like, you know, go for it, but just realize that just because something gets the label of ESG doesn't mean it's ethical because they will give companies an ESG rating because they think they're good for the environment and just completely gloss over the fact that they can be using child slave labor. So if you really want to only invest in companies that you feel are, are you know, have, have good ethics and things like that, you can't rely on the ESG rating because it, it ignores certain things yeah, in favor of others. It's like, again, it's, it's, it's a whole investment uh, mandate that's being thrust on uh, literally like industries, all, every industry now it seems that is again it's based on logical inconsistencies and it's going to get to a point where if you don't check the quote unquote ESG boxes, you're not going to be able to raise capital. And it's like oh yeah, well I think it's kind of like a bubble actually because I think they're creating a bubble because they're pushing so much money into like they've created this ESG thing. Now they're pushing all this money into these ESG funds and they're overinflating the value of these companies simply because they've determined that they belong in this ESG subgenre and that subgenre deserve is deserving of more money. And you know what happens we all know what happens to bubbles. Yeah. Other than if they're created by like the federal government, they're gonna burst. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. And guess what enables this? Central bank, the treasury working in conjunction to print money to just throw it at the bullshit. And this is this is another reason we need Bitcoin to to take away the the ability to manipulate the levers of the monetary system so that you can go misallocate this capital terribly. Like it has been misallocated for the last fifty years. I feel like someone used to when I was in grad school. Um, so one of the parts of, of grad school in history is that you at least where I was, you had to do um, oral exams that showed that you had like a grasp of like lots of different parts of history. The idea was to like, you know, you'd be able to like, you knew different historical arguments, you could teach the classes. So you had to do a lot of reading in 
areas that weren't necessarily your like particular areas. So like I did 20th century history, but I had to, American history, but I had to do, I had to read about colonial history and 19th century and, and all that. But when I did the 20th century, I wanted to focus more on like economics and business. And so one of the books I read, I was really interested in the Great Depression and the gold standard. So I read a whole book about the gold standard and like the transition away from it and, and what it meant. And I feel like now with with central banks and, and Bitcoin, it's like we need, I need like, there needs to be like an updated version of this because some people are like, oh, we have to go back to the gold standard. I feel like that ship has sailed like a long time ago, but maybe there's some other like iteration of it. There's some like some other, like some enterprising like country is going to come up with a new like type, a new way of like, like doing this that could involve these, these Bitcoin things. I, I just, it strikes me as like, that was something that is very much in the past, but there are still ideas that we can draw on from that as we kind of chart this new financial. Yeah. Future. I mean, that's Satoshi. He didn't outright say it, but he, he compared Bitcoin to gold. Um, and so Bitcoin is our only chance to get back to something, anything like a gold standard. Gold standard was completely neutered by executive order 6102 yeah. and 33, where yeah. gold's physical nature, uh, the fact that it's held up in, in these vaults controlled by government. Yeah. Exactly. So. But what about like a new, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like things can be really, I don't know. They're, they're evolving. It'd be really interesting to read like the book that's written about this, except oh, I want to wait like 50 years. Well, the Bitcoin standard, you can go pick it up now. by Bitcoin, Dr. Oh. Yeah. But you can't write the history of something as it's still evolving. Uh, I think you gotta yeah. wait, but yeah. I'm a historian. So well, this book the history of money. And so like, what, what is a good money? A good money is something that is relatively scarce, divisible, portable, um, like universally recognized, uh, and Bitcoin fits that bill, uh, and even better. And, and it can't be neutered like the gold standard because I run the rules of Bitcoin on my computer right here. And I can, I can guarantee and validate that nobody is producing more Bitcoins than I believe than, than my node says yeah. should exist. Where in gold, it's in that vault. Those vaults, they can have that gold, and then they issue notes on it, and they can issue orders of magnitude more notes than the amount of gold they had in that vault. And Bitcoin completely flips that on its head, where anybody with sixty dollars worth of hardware can validate that uh, there's no Bitcoin being printed above what the protocol is distributed at any point in time, um, if they're taking custody of it. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. We're transitioning into the digital age earnestly now things are getting hectic uh the it'll be very interesting to see if the climate hysterics uh are able to to push us towards these unreliable energy sources that make humanity worse off i really hope it does as a 30 year old with with a 15 month old son i don't want him to grow up in a world where these people actually dictate policy and uh, the way we grow our economy because it's going to make destroy our economy is a better way to put it it's gonna make us worse off yeah i mean i have like thoughts about where i think things are going and yet you know you never really know like i have things that really worry me like this like this shift to the use of the word climate emergency is something that i find very disturbing because i can like you can look at where people have used the word emergency in the past and what that meant and, and what this is trying to mean but at the same time like we really have no idea like I mean, like, I remember thinking, you know, you, you just have no clue, like, 
no one really knows where things are going. So no, that's, that's you, at least we have to hope? have like hope. <laughs> well, you gotta have hope. And I think, I think there's a silent majority out there that's just been sitting on the sidelines, sitting on their, sitting on their hands, not saying anything and watching this insanity unfold. And I, I think like we have to get out there and encourage people like speak up. Yeah. You know, this, oh, yeah. you know, this is wrong. Say it like, don't be afraid yeah. to be canceled by the woke mob. Yeah. And the truth is that that's only online. Like people right. have to realize that like life is not Twitter. No, that's what like, I do that. You know exactly where I am right now. This Island, like the whole last year, uh, with lockdowns and everything. Luckily, this is a small island off season, less than 5,000 people. And everybody's like, yeah, what the hell is going on here? Like, it's, and you talk to people in person, they, they're, they're calling bullshit. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think that pe- people have very, very different experiences with this past year and a half based on where they lived. So, like, I live in Jacksonville and things were, like, very chill here. Like, people were not crazy for the most part like there was like a very brief period where they were like safer at home and lots of businesses were closed but it was like two months and that was it six weeks maybe and um you know but I think that 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 led to like having a very different experience from someone who say lives in New York City or Minnesota or California and I think this is like we have to realize that this is a source of great division, but that there are millions of people who had millions and millions of very different experiences. And that is going to drive them and their decisions and their thought processes and in the future. Yeah. Agreed. It's um, social media is allowed soapbox or a soapbox that uh, gives a loud minority, uh, maybe undue influence over the conversation. Um, and it, yeah, it scares the hell out of people. You oh know, yeah, everyone's talking about ESG. You got pe- people uh, throughout society afraid to to uh, point at things they know are legitimately insane and say it unless they be canceled. Um, have are, are any bitcoins rated as ESG? Not yet. Should, okay, so you should try to get 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 rated as ESG. I mean, see, def- like, 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 contact the like Bloomberg Foundation or whatever, and see if you can like rate yourself as ESG no, no. and see what happens. We need no. We need to reject ESG. Reject it. Not take it over. No. Like, come no. on, stage no. a stage a coup. That's working within their framing. We need to change the framing and say this is insane. We at Great America Mining, we could probably get ESG certified today. We reduce methane. Like- How hilarious would that be? I mean, it's, it would be like the ultimate proof that their standard is meaningless. Uh, I don't know. It's a thought. Well, I would actually argue that we we do help the environment. We are socially conscious because because yeah. Bitcoin is a, a monetary system for all, controlled by nobody. Uh, there you go. And it, it ushers in a um, it, its governance is is anybody can can uh, actually contribute yeah. to its governance and say, hey, here's what I think the code should look like and. Have discussion about it, and it ushers in a, a sound monetary system in the digital age that prevents overconsumption, which leads to the the over overuse of, of natural resources, if you will. So we we hit all the boxes. Yeah, oh. you check all the boxes. So like you know, you are ESG. You are the new the new face of ESG. ESG is what like two years old. It's time for an ESG re- rebranding. Move over, Greta. We're taking over. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Ellen, 
We didn't get to talk about Saudi Inc. Uh, uh, much, but people should read it. It's a great book if you want to learn about Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> no, really. It, I mean, people have told me it's a good story. Um, it's more. It's not like your average. It's not a textbook. It's a really good story, but everything is true, except kind of like the first opening story. I like. I I wrote that based on a bunch of different sources, but anyway, it's a story of how the Saudi kingdom emerged alongside of its oil industry. So sometimes I describe it as it's a story of the of Saudi Arabia through the eyes of its oil industry. And it discusses how the oil industry in Saudi Arabia started. It started as an American company, American men and their interactions with the Saudis, but it also discusses the vision that um, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud and the men that he put in charge kind of had for this oil industry and the way that they viewed it um, and, and this vision that they had is really what allowed it to flourish. Whereas in other countries, other Middle Eastern countries that had a lot of oil, like Iraq or Iran or you know other areas, they didn't view their oil in the same way. And they didn't, basically they, the Saudis allowed the oil industry to kind of be independent. They recognized the value that the Americans brought and they treated it like a business. And they actually, they, and so instead of viewing it as like an ideological thing, when other countries, they nationalized their resources, the Saudis said, look, we have this really good thing with the Americans here. Yes, it's our oil. We're paying them to, to run this industry. And we have so much that we can learn from them. And they actually like took Saudis who had no education. I mean, like, like could not read. They became educated and grew up to become executives at this oil company and then eventually to run it. And then the Saudi government bought the company in a totally legal way. So they operated within the normal confines of business and that enabled them to always maximize the amount of money that they could make. And it was always about making more money. It wasn't about politics. They kind of kept oil separate from their politics and that really enabled them to make so much more money. And, and so I argue that that's the way that they've always viewed the oil industry. And that's one of the reasons that it was, it became so successful and that Aramco became such a successful oil company in the Middle East. Now things are definitely changing and have changed. And in the paperback version of the book, I have like an extra epilogue that kind of talks about some of the changes that have gone on since Mohammed bin Salman became important, uh, you know, became the crown prince um, because the book actually ends um, like before the death of Abdel. It ends like in 2015. So, um, but yeah, if you are interested in learning about like what in the world was going on out there in the desert and why the Saudis, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I heard, I think it was Fareed Zakaria said something like, the Saudis, all they can do is they, they just drill holes in the ground. And I was like, no, there is so much more. They are, they, they are like the best at what they do. The idea that they're just out there in the desert drilling holes in the ground is has, you know, it isn't at all. And so I got, kind of wrote the book in reaction to that to show how even when they had nothing and they had no education and they, you know, they didn't have very much, they were very shrewd in what they saw for the future and that they've always, you know, that, that they're actually very shrewd in, in what they do and their vision and in bringing this to life. So you can go find it in your bookstore, Amazon, get it on Audible, um, get a paperback, get it from the library. 
I started listening to Audible recently. It's like great character building, great storytelling, and, and it's, it's a fascinating part of humanity, uh, the oil industry in Saudi. Russian and Chinese. Russian and Chinese. If you do happen to read Russian or Chinese. Uh, this is a global uh, global podcast. Yeah. There's people listening from all over. Um, yeah, well, go pick up the books, freaks. Yeah. Saudi Inc. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, the, the, I love that you wrote it. Uh, uh, getting insulted on behalf of the Saudis because it, it, it is not uh, it, it, uh, most people don't take offense on behalf of the Saudis. Yeah, it's yeah. that's true. I also I met so I, and in the process, you know, I I started basically as like for my dissertation research, but in the process of like expanding it and everything, I met so many incredible people in Saudi Arabia who have so much passion and want to do better for their people and to, and for their country. And, um, you know, to me, like they're the ones who I I'm inspired by them. It's not just like the princes and the guys at the top, but it's, it's the people who are working and, and really want better for their country. And, and some of those people have been persecuted by the government. And, and so I, you know, I just, my heart breaks for them and it's, it's terrible what has happened to them, especially these people who really only wanted to build a better life for themselves and, and their country and, and help their country. Another, another case of a government fucking something up. It's shocking. But, shocking. Exactly. Yeah. Ellen, I hope you have a lovely Friday afternoon. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. I, I completely just bombarded you with, with after <laughs> at the ESG movement. And you have- oh, it was so much fun. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> Well, where can we find out more about you? Um, well, you can go to my website, uh, ellenrwalt.com, uh, or my company website, which is transversalconsulting.com. Uh, and we do all sorts of things, like you mentioned, about oil market um, and, and now, obviously, other, other issues other than oil. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter, where I am quite active, probably more active than I should be for my own good uh i'm at energized economy that's e-n-e-r-g-z-d economy follow buy the book check out the websites learn speak up speak up the world's going insane and we need more sane people to speak up ellen thank you for joining us (laughs) have a great weekend see you guys